Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo. Oh boy, oh boy, what a week. How about that storm the other night? Well, of course, one of the big things we want to talk about today is the impact of the storm and where are we up to in regards to it. So we're going to talk to our local mayor, Matt Dickerson, in regards to that to find out what is it uh, after the storm, what's been the fallout from the storm, what is council going to do to help us out in regards to this massive clean-up event, which is going to obviously have to take place over the course of the next few weeks and possibly months? We'll also look at uh, an update of the recent council meeting that was held. There's quite a fair bit to get through there. And, of course, some of the plans for the upcoming New South Wales Touch Football Competition. Hello, Matt. How are you today? Yeah, a bit exhausted after all the activity at the end of the week for that storm, as you said. I've talked about it a little bit where we had drought, and then bushfires, and then mice plagues, and then pandemic, and then floods. It's the Dorothy McKillop poem, isn't it? You know, the (laughs) land of flooding countries, plus I think it's the apocalypse. It's all sort of throwing into one in the last few years, hasn't it? And I've been saying that hopefully we get a bit of clear air this year, and all those things behind us, and looking forward to a really positive year, Mm. and a few weeks into the year, suddenly we get these major storms that have hit. And from a council perspective, it wasn't so bad. We kept treating water, we kept treating sewerage, we didn't have any breakdowns in those sort of essential pieces of infrastructure. Our airport was still powered up. So, And again, for those essential pieces of infrastructure, we've got backup generators as well, but we managed to keep all those things running as per usual. Great. And so all those things, all the the operations of council continued on. Obviously, we have infrastructure like drainage where water needs to get away and Mm. it was quite fascinating that even though we had a bit of debris, leaves, branches, that type of thing, clogging up some drains, they weren't too bad, but ice was the killer. Absolutely. It was the X factor this time, wasn't it? It was, yeah, the hail that built up there and you think, Mm. well, it melts, but while it's getting around to melting, Mm. it can still block drains. So we did see a few block drains and unfortunately we've had a few residents who have had some water go into their homes and back up there in some areas, even just flooding backyards and doing a bit of damage in their Mm. garden. Mm. But again, the most important thing, of course, was that we haven't had any reports of injuries, haven't had any reports of major accidents and obviously no deaths and that's always the number one priority. Absolutely. Property damage is annoying, frustrating, takes time to get fixed up, mm. but it's only property damage. Yes. Whereas human damage obviously is a little bit harder to recover from. Mm. So it was interesting, even the council meeting this week, we were in Wellington, we do have council meetings in Wellington every few okay. months, yep. and we're in Wellington, we had some people remote and had one of our councillors remote coming in, and of course we lost internet connection, mm-hmm. then we had a complete blackout in Wellington, so yes, here I am yes. chairing the meeting in complete dark. That I guess will adjourn the meeting. So there has been an accusation that councils are kept in the dark around different <laughs> things, and, and there's proof. So, <laughs> so it's, had, it's been an interesting week, yeah, without yes. a doubt. And hopefully, residents are okay with all of those things. Obviously, I don't hear from every resident, but I have said it a number of times if you're going to have an emergency, then this is the area in the world to have mm. that emergency because we have mm. such great volunteers with organisations like SES and yes. not all volunteers, some of people are paid with Fire Brigade, but I saw Fire Brigade, SES, I saw these different organisations out there helping people mm. and I think even up to about 10 o'clock on Thursday night, there'd been about 250 phone calls through mm. to SES for help and I saw them out and about doing things and 
they've probably got their own homes oh, and own absolutely. families to care for, but they're out there helping people. Some private contractors, I know Arbitech I saw out there cutting down some trees late at night, early the next morning back into it again. Mm. So there are some fantastic people that are out there mm. willing to help others in our communities. That is a really nice thing. I'll give you an example. I was uh, driving uh, around there this morning with my son. We're actually going in to get a coffee. And uh, there was a situation whereby one of the electric energy trucks, one that had the big crane on the back there, sort of pulled up to the lights, sitting at the front of the lights sort of line there. Anyway, the light went green. And it would have been probably maybe 10 seconds or so before he eventually turns around the corner. And, of course, I'm sitting there going, what's going on with this bloke? Come on, mate, it's green. Let's go. And my son, of all things, turns around and he says, Dad, he was probably up all night until three or four. He probably hadn't slept yet. He's just noticed the green. Just be accepting the fact the poor bloke's still awake at the wheel. And I went, oh, reality check. Absolutely, buddy. That's exactly right. So, yeah, yeah there are. There's some fantastic people, aren't they? Just doing incredible things. Yeah, right. so, so from here, what's what's situation now for with the cleanup? Is there anything that, from the point of view of council, that they can do to assist with this? So we are doing a little bit. We A couple of things there. The general public cleanup, our staff are obviously flat out, and they'll take days, maybe a week or more, to go and clean up just the debris, just the mm. mess, branches down, trees down, it might be on roads, it might be on track O'Reilly. Obviously, we're prioritising all of that, going to the areas that are the most important first, yep. areas where it might cause danger for people. And so that's just general cleanup of public areas. Mm. In terms of private areas, so people that might have trees down in their backyard or branches or those type of things, then obviously that's up to the individuals to go and clean mm. up their own yards. Yep. What we did think that we might try and do to try and help people out was do another green waste pickup. The same okay. as we do a, a couple idea. of times a year where we have various rubbish that can be picked up, green waste or different things that we can pick up from people. But we just looked at that to try and resource that. Mm. And it was not impossible, but difficult and maybe not sensible. So, for example, we talked to a few different individual companies that provide those type of services, right. but they can't just stop whatever they're doing and suddenly come mm. and give us a number of staff to go and do that. They obviously mm. have their staff not sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting no, for a job. Especially right now, it's pretty easy for them all, I'd say. It'd be very busy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we looked at that, and then we looked at using our own staff, but our own staff are busy doing their normal job. So they might be out on road repair crews. They might be out there doing the normal maintenance of public areas, mowing lawns alongside Tracker Riley, getting mm. the green areas ready for touch footy carnivals, all sorts of things like that. Yep. And then the question was, do we stop all that mm. for the convenience of having some green waste pick up on the curbside? Mm. And we just didn't think that was a sensible way to use resources in the best possible way. So what we have done is we've said anyone that takes green waste out through till Sunday week, so basically the storm was on Thursday the 9th yep. through till Sunday the 19th. If you take green waste out to the tip, you won't be charged for that. Now, okay. we good. also want people to be sensible with that. Yeah. If someone turns yeah. up that's obviously just done a whole heap of pruning in the yard and they've cut down a whole range of branches, there was nothing to do with the storm and trying to take advantage of council, then our staff are probably going to say, are you sure all of that came down that's in the, the storm? That's the third load you brought out here today in the last two hours. <laughs> that's right. And yep. you can see some of that where it's obviously been snapped off by a mm. storm or it's all beautiful, clean cut mm. as in terms of having a, a chainsaw there going through it all. Yep. But I don't think that's going to be a large problem. I no. think people in general are going to be thankful that they can go and take their trailers out there. You don't pay a lot for it anyway. Off the top of my head, I think you pay about $44 a tonne for green waste that can be chipped and $125 okay. a tonne for green waste that can't be chipped. Don't hold me to those figures. I mm -hmm. think they're the figures from memory. Yep. So the, there are 
small cost savings there, but it's really just some way of saying to our residents, this something you can do. Hmm. Obviously, this has impacted the whole community of Dubbo. Yep. So there's a little thing you can do to take that green waste out there just to help a little bit. That doesn't apply in Wellington. That applies specifically in Dubbo because okay. Wellington just didn't have... It didn't have the same impact out there. Didn't have the same impact. Didn't have the same storm rage through the same as Dubbo did. Okay. So it's not a case of Dubbo residents being more important than Wellington <laughs> residents. There just wasn't that same just impact. Just didn't have the same level of impact again. And it was such a, a, a such a wide area in Dubbo as well. So we really want to encourage people to go and do that, encourage yeah. people to actually take that green waste out, don't leave it around in your backyard, try and clean up your yard as quick as you yeah, can, absolutely. but that might just encourage people a little hey, bit. Hey, quick question for you. Um, in regards to a moment like this, we have a storm, a major event takes place like that. What in, uh, From the point of view of the coordination, um, does Dubbo City Council involve itself in the coordination of the cleanup, or is that left to the individual you know, departments around the place who, who do this? How does it actually work with the coordination? Hey, there is an emergency committee, and okay. that emergency committee has a range of representatives on it. And in the flooding, for example, that was really important. They were meeting on a regular basis. So again, just off the top of my head, it would have council on there, police, SES, You'd have fire, probably RFS on there, as mm. well as fire services. So a range of those emergency services. Yep. And again, they all work together to come to conclusions that are going to be for the betterment of the community. Yep. So it's not as if one agency says, well, we're going to do it this way. Yeah, yeah. And the rest of you can suit yourselves. It's all about working together because okay. there are times that we might rely on different agencies for things that might not necessarily involve them. And the flooding was a perfect example. Mm. We were getting help from the Rural Fire Service. Mm. Well, this is flooding. That's mm. the complete opposite of yeah, the Rural absolutely. Fire Service. Yeah, yeah. Right we'd, now, we'd enjoy a bit of a fire. That's it. That's yeah, right. Dry so this place up. They had time on their hands because they weren't out there fighting fires. Okay. And so we used some of their resources to help us when we needed some of those extra resources. Right. So the idea is to work together. It doesn't happen perfectly in every local government area. Mm. But the idea is, again, if you can all work together to get the best outcome. And it's again, there's no one who says, we're going to put our little feet down and say, this mm. is the way we're going to do it. So council doesn't walk in and start directing. You're right, SES, you go over there and do mm. that. The police, mm. you go and do that. No one's directing anyone. And there are all they've all got their chains of command, individual chains of command, but the idea is to work together. So mm. again, the police, if the police minister said, police, we're going to have you go and do this, then they would still have to do that. They've still got their normal chain of command. But okay. the idea is to work together yeah. in a conciliatory way and come to conclusions that are going to work best for everyone. So yeah. it, it seems to work quite well. That's great. Well, I'm so pleased to hear that no one's been injured and that, uh, you know, over the course of the next few months, life will move forward again. Now, Matt, it looks like uh, last Thursday night was a very busy night there on council. So uh, quite a few things you got through here in regards to it. I just want to start off one here. It's quite an interesting one uh, in regards to the airport security screening. Hmm. So what's happening out at the airport? Because I suppose first and foremost, now the airport security screening, this is when you come into the airport area and you go through the screening area and you've got the security set up there. Has there been a change of personnel in this space or what's actually happened? Yeah, changing contractor. And one of the interesting things here is that the airport is owned by the community, owned by Dubbo Regional Council, which is effectively the community, and we run the airport. Now, that's all well and good, but there are laws you've got to adhere to and some of those are federal laws. Right. Security screening, you might remember many years ago, there was the ongoing debate about how we would implement security screening. 
once there were planes flying over 20 tonnes, so once Qantas Link made the decision to go from Q300s to Q400s, that then triggered the need for our security screening, didn't trigger the need for all airlines. Right. And council at the time, and I was mayor at the time back in Dubbo City Council days, we made a decision as a council to say if one airline needs to do it, we just think it's better for everyone concerned to have all airlines. Mm -hmm. Not all airlines agreed with that. There was a process we went through. At the end of it, we've now got an airport that's got security screening for all airlines. There are very strict rules around that. And those rules are checked from time to time by the federal government because they don't want potential terrorist acts, if I go to the extreme example, occurring at any airport in Australia. And if one airport is known to have very poor security practices, that might be an airport that something could be introduced at. So they check from time to time and they talk to council several times over the last, say, six months about some potential breaches in our processes. Now, they didn't say we found that you're letting terrorists get on planes. It wasn't as extreme as that. It was really just... You've got some processes that aren't working the way they should. Okay. You need to talk to your contractor to make sure they're adhering to the contract to the letter of the law. Right. We had some discussions with our contractor, and I think they were not performing the way they would like to perform in that contract as well. Yep. So those discussions occurred. We were working with them because we didn't want to go out to a new contract or a new tender. That all takes time, yep. all costs money. We wanted to work with them. It got to the stage near Christmas where that contractor said, we don't think we can continue on with this contract. Okay. That creates a major problem. because around Christmas time. It's a busy time of the year. It's exactly right. And it creates a few issues apart from that because it's a council resolution that actually nominated, they won a tender back several years ago. And so that's a council resolution to put that contractor in place. Right. So if they walk away, we can't just go and grab someone else and say, can well, you just go through the security the meeting process, don't you? Is that the way it works? Well, you've got to go through normally a yeah, tender yeah. process. Yeah, absolutely. And at Christmas time, when you've got to do it in a very short period of time, to go through the certain process you have to do with the tender, mm. advertising for a certain period of time, then get those tenders back, and obviously you need to assess them. You can assess them pretty quickly if you have yep. to, and then go to a council meeting. Oh, wait up. We're at Christmas time. How are we going to get even yeah. a quorum yeah. for a council meeting now yeah. with councils away on holidays? So I did something I've never done before, right. and it's not something I would do lightly, and I don't think many mayors would do it lightly. Under Section 226D of the Local Government Act, a mayor can exercise the function of the council in extraordinary circumstances. Okay. So again... What you're talking about there is effectively the mayor can make a resolution of council the same as if it was in a council meeting. Now, it would be silly for a mayor just to ignore councils and just willy-nilly start throwing around 226D of the Local Government Act. In this scenario, though, the process was that we needed another security provider at very short notice. We needed to change that over pretty quickly, and we didn't have time to go to a tender and go back to a council meeting. So I actually got the staff to give me a report as if it was going to a council meeting. So the same process you'd go through a council meeting, give me that report. We need to nominate another company without a tender process, which is not a pretty process Mm. because obviously Mm. there is all sorts of potential for corruption in that process. Yes. And then what I did with that report, once I'd satisfied myself with that report and was happy with that, I then did email it around to other councillors and said... I'm going to, I'm proposing to exercise my powers under Section 226, but here is the report. Let me know if you've got any concerns or issues with it. If you do, then I can take notice of that before I go and exercise that. Right. Councillors came back, gave me their feedback, yep. and then I exercised those powers. So we nominated a new security provider. Okay. 
that started for an 18-month period with that new security provider without a tender before the end of that 18-month period. So I imagine tender. the reason why they've probably gone to an 18-month here is because, uh, well, I can only sort of begin to think the fact that if you're going to come in from an outside group into a space, you, you want a reasonable amount of time to set things up. Well, you want a period of time, and that was part of the There's negotiation. There's got a bit of security there for them, and another That's right. part on the word. I would have preferred a shorter period of time, but trying to find a contractor to come in without charging a ridiculous amount of money, mm. and with them having some sort of process where at least they'll come out in front, we don't want them going broke, yep. that was the sort of period of time they needed to be able to spend time getting their mm. processes correct, and then still be able to make some money out of that particular contract. We did actually ask them to retain as many of the staff as they possibly could from the previous contractor. Yep. So they had discussions with all of those people, interviewed those people, and offered the majority of those people jobs, and I think the majority of those people have kept them. So for the travelling public, when you turn mm. up at the airport... You're not going to notice a difference? Yeah, you probably won't notice any difference. Mm. You might notice a different badge on the uniform, a different contracting company, but you probably still see some of the same people you, you saw before, yep. and so you'll go through and do that. But it, again, it gives you an idea of the variety of things that a council is involved with. That was something that's not something that necessarily councillors are experts on. Mm. I'm not an expert on security screening processes. So you've got to get that advice, check that advice, make sure you're comfortable with it, go and do your own independent research and then make sure you're making a decision mm. that you're comfortable with and is the best thing for the community. So an interesting process. Again, mm. I've never used those powers before as no. mayor. No. I hope never to use them again because I want councillors to be involved in decisions, not me individually. Mm. But in this case, it was really the only outcome. And I suppose end of the day, in 18 months' time, it goes to tender again anyway, doesn't it? That's exactly right. So it will go to tender, and it will be before 18 months' time, obviously. It'll yeah, be a period before right. then, so that in 18 months, we can change over to that tender process, which may be the company that's got it now, maybe a new one, but it'll mm. be a normal, mm. open tender process. Moral of the story is it's still safe to fly. <laughs> Uh, just a little uh, light little one here, um, Matt, in regards to donation of park benches. So this was something that was brought up here as well in the meeting. So donation of park, what, can I donate a park bench? How does, how does this work? What are we talking about here in regards to donations of park benches? And do we need more park benches in Dubbo? Is this part of the need? Well, funnily enough, and no one's done it for you yet, but give it time, people do come forward to council <laughs> from time to time <laughs> and ask if they can donate something to commemorate a person or an organisation. Mm. And I actually remember when I first got elected to council back in 2004, in that first period of council, I can't tell you exactly when, but it was probably within the first year maybe. What, someone wanted to donate a park bench even then or Well, no, you, but or? We, we, not for me at that <laughs> stage, no. But we had a councillor who passed away. Oh, okay. Uh, Bob Thompson was his name, right. a very, very nice gentleman. And so we as a council actually put in a park bench in Victoria Park with Bobby's name on it to yeah. commemorate the fact that we had a sitting councillor who passed away. Yep. But it was ad hoc. And yep. that's the problem we have at the moment is we do have this process that if someone approaches us mm. and says, I'd like to donate a park bench or any bit of furniture mm. because Mary's been a lovely woman for the community or this organisation's commemorating 100 years or mm. whatever it might be, mm then we have to look at each one of those individual cases on its merits and work out how we might do it. And are you donating it? Do you expect council to pay for it? Mm. What's the process there? Mm. So rather than go down that process, Councillor Jess Goff brought forward a notice of motion to council to say we need to develop a policy on this. Mm. And so we debated that at council on Thursday night and eventually decided, yes, this would be a good idea. Go away for the staff to go away and come up with some sort of policy, come back and then obviously councillors will fine-tune that mm. and get the right outcome there. The good part about a policy is then when someone does come forward and says, I want the Mark Barnes 
park bench, then we can say, let's look at the park bench policy. I like a gold, by the way. Gold, I really right. want to stand out. So the policy says it must be gold. There we go. So, <laughs> and it might be a bit like street names. If you want, if someone wants to name a street name after someone, a developer, for example, says, oh, look, I'm a big fan of this particular rugby league player, mm. or I love this person that's done great work in our mm. community, then we've got a policy on that. And mm. the policy generally says, paraphrasing here, that they must be an eminent citizen and they must be passed away. Mm. So if they're a, a someone that's contributed to our community in some way and they're no longer with us, then other conditions yeah. there as well. But generally that can be someone who obviously yeah. we could name a street, a park bench, sorry, a street name after. That might be something similar with a park bench. I'm not putting words into the, yeah. the mouths of our staff, but it could be something like that. But again, it's all about policy and that's where councillors should involve themselves mm in what happened to council, create policy, and then mm. our staff can say, well, here's policy number 7258, and it says that for a park bench you need A, B, and C. Mm. There we go, and you've got to pay for it, and you've got to maintain it, or whatever that process might be. Mm. So it just makes it simpler for all concerned. No, it's, it's funny, it's um, when we're over there in England and uh, and sort of walking around, even the smallest little towns, it was one of those sort of, I suppose one of those little features where you'd be walking down uh, just a quiet little cobblestone street somewhere and you come across a park bench and there would be these little plaques on them. And they're everywhere, you know, and you couldn't help but stop and read. Yeah. You know, dedicated to, you know, Beryl Smith and blah, blah, blah for what she did and this sort of thing. Or it might be a nice little statement of verse or whatever. Yep. It sort of reminds me of the Notting, Hill, the Notting Hill film, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, where Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant are there and they're sitting in the little park bench there at the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's very good. I, I love the idea. And that may... B would end up developing there. Again, that policy hasn't come through yet. We'll, and the process from here is that our staff will come back with a policy. They'll have some discussions with councillors. Mm. They'll get a draft policy. That'll come back to council. We might modify that, change it. We might love it how it is. Then it'll go out for public exhibition. Mm. We'll obviously invite the public to put their comments in, their thoughts in. We'll talk about it on here to make sure that people will and surely know about it. Yeah. And then we'll come back for a final process. So it takes some time to have that happen, but it means that when we've got something in the end, People have had the chance to have the say, their say on it. And the good part about that is that then if someone wants to do it, they've made a decision or they've mm. made their contribution when it wasn't personal because then suddenly their mother passes away. Oh, good, I'll go and put a park bench up there. Hold on. We said that they have to have gone, mm. uh, been been gone for 10 years. Oh, well, mm. I can't do it for mum yet. So mm. Absolutely. Again, I'm, I'm only making up things there, but yeah. it means that you're making these decisions on policy yeah. when it's not specific to one example. Oh, I love the idea. Let's sit on it for a while. Now, Matt, uh, I think one of the big things that causes problems, I think, within uh, neighbourhood disputes at times is when people build things next door to us, in particular, I suggest things like sheds. Now, I know over past years and previous properties and stuff like that, and people will sort of put these big sheds around the place, and I've seen them when you drive along, and they can be quite huge and things, and I know that people do get upset by the size of some of these uh, sheds that they take into place, and they can sort of feel as though they're sort of creating almost an overshadowing effect and overbearing effect on their property. So was there an amendment to any of this policy in regards to how people can build these sheds that put forward there last Thursday night? Has there been a change to this? So there's a potential change for this. So the idea here is that we want to put this out on public exhibition to, again, get feedback from it and then let it come back for council to make a, a final resolution. Now, at the moment, if you want to build a shed, you've got a normal development application you would go through. 
but it's fairly open in what you can do. And so we've seen a few examples recently where people have had those very large sheds that they mm. might be building next door, and it suits that particular person. People might be getting larger boats, larger caravans, so they might want larger sheds, and sometimes tall, sometimes just mm. large in general. Mm. So they put an application in, and it meets all the guidelines and all the building codes and effectively is a legal complying development application. But the next door neighbour says, hold on, mm. that looks pretty big. Yep. Is that enough reason to stop that? Well, the first neighbour would say, well, I'm complying with everything. Mm. So just because it looks a bit big for you, plant a tree, buddy. And mm. the next door neighbour says, well, I want to plant a tree. And mm. so as you mm. say, mm. you can end up with neighbours not really getting on that well yes. after a process because each one sees things from their point of view yep. and maybe not happy with that outcome. What a good council does is tries to take as many individual situations out of play and creates policies around those so that everyone knows the rules. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. The idea would be that essentially we would have what's called a development control plan, a DCP, and that basically adds some extra layers to developments. And in this particular scenario, it might be that the larger the shed the more you've got to set it back away from the boundary. So okay. if you want to just build a normal shed and you can build it to a certain distance from your boundary, yep. a normal small shed, one that might be, say, a similar size height to your house, sure, put it up there and you might be able to go to a certain distance. You might, mm. and again, this don't quote me on these, but no. this is just an example, it might be one and a half metres from the fence, sure. But if you want something that's going to be a couple of metres higher than mm. a normal house because you've got something large you want to put in there, well, then your setback might be three metres, for mm. example. Mm. So just playing with that and just getting to the point where people can say, well, that seems reasonable, so he can still build a larger shed if he wants to house something large, but he can't build it right on the boundary yeah. where I've Give got to look at this. Space there, yeah. yeah, I've got to look at this big sheer face there. Yeah. There might be some mm. things in there where you've got to address it with trees. There's mm. a whole range of things okay. that you can do in a DCP. Yeah. So in essence, it really is about having those steps in place. So when someone comes along to put their application in, mm. they've got to adhere to the control plan. And so the neighbour then, next door neighbour, when they look at it, they go, well, I remember that control plan. I put in my submission to that and I'm mm. happy with all that happened there or maybe mm. they didn't put a submission in. But basically everyone knows the rules and the community has made a decision on those rules and then people go forward with that. Yeah. It may not be perfect in terms of some people still might say, well, now I see how big it is. I, I didn't realise it would be that big and I'm still not happy with that. But you've got to have some level of compromise there where people could still build something similar to what they want within reason and the neighbours still get some sort of amenity consideration within reason. So, again, it's all about that compromise. And I like the fact, too, that uh, the council is um, is looking towards, when it comes to uh, you know the modern world we live in, there's, the, the world is changing across the board. And, and I think across the board we see the fact that more people have got caravans. We're certainly getting an, we're an ageing population. And mm. so the, the typical grey nomad scenario, there's a few more of us popping up. And I'm looking at you and me right now in regards <laughs> to our greying hair. Um, you know, so, so therefore you've got to house these things somewhere. So I can see the need for the fact that people are wanting to put in these bigger sheds around the place. Yeah. But I can also see the need too for the fact that we've got to get out there and make sure there's a compromise to allow for the neighbours who don't necessarily want to see a big shed next to them to actually to have that uh, that sense of, well, we've got a compromise set in place here, you know. That's right. So this is good. And some people have said to me before, well, I've lodged a complaint, why did it go ahead? And lodging a complaint doesn't mean that it stops everything. Yes. That's just part of the consideration. But again, if someone said, 
hold on, I've read that new DCP that's gone through council and this doesn't adhere to it, that would be dramatically different to mm. I just don't like the look of it. So, mm. again, these are things that we put in place. Yeah. And, again, it's all about policy, policy, policy. Yeah, absolutely. Let's sort of uh, change tack a bit here and let's uh, head towards here, out along um, the changes here to the land zone and minimum lot size. Now, is this referring to here in Dubbo? Like, are we looking at creating certain areas of town here um, that we can get smaller blocks of land um, that people can purchase for development side of things? Is this for personal housing or is this for investment side of things? Or what, what's, I suppose to try to put in a nutshell here, Matt, what's, what's actually happening here in regards to what would be potentially the minimum lot size here in Dubbo? Well, this one here is a specific lot that we're talking about or a specific parcel of so land. So it's a particular area of Dubbo we're talking about. Well, so not, not a general sort of across-the-board ruling on this. Yes and no. So okay. there are general rules across various parcels of land. In this particular one here, there's been uh, an amendment or a proposed amendment for the land use zone and minimum lot size over on Narromine Road, 13L Narromine Road. So okay. basically there's a parcel of land there that the developer's already got approval for and could start building blocks of land and selling those now. But mm. we've got to push in Dubbo to produce more housing land, more housing stock. We've got lots of people that want to come to Dubbo. Mm. That's fantastic. Mm. We don't have enough housing for them. Mm. So this is part of the issue. So this particular developer realises that potentially there's the ability to develop smaller lot sizes. So this particular amendment here is all around reducing the minimum lot size. Now, it's changed a lot. There's a lot of people in, say, South Dubbo that have still got 1,600 square metre blocks. Yes. And that's fantastic. You've got a house on there, you've got a nice yard, you can have the dogs run around, you can just play with the kids, whatever. Mm. But that costs more money than mm. if you have smaller lot sizes. And so there was a time, I remember years ago, when people started building on, say, 800 and 600 square metre blocks and people were horrified by that. Mm. Oh, that's, that's mm. terrible. How can you have a backyard on that? But again, it comes down to affordability. And it comes yep. down to what you want. You might not want to tie up your entire Saturday with mowing the lawn and fixing up the garden. You might want to go to a coffee shop and then a movie on a Saturday. So you might want that big backyard. Mm. This would allow lot sizes down as small as 300 square metres. Mm. And now, again, some people are horrified by the idea. Are of these freestanding houses or are they like duplex style? Or well, again, there'll, the there'll, there'll probably be a mix of that. Okay. And it, you think about a 300 square metre lot size, again, I don't think that every lot in the entire development is going to be 300 square metres, but it gives you the ability to go down to that size. So you could actually have some one unit or one bedroom houses in there because you might have young professionals who move in and that's an affordability process for them. They might be coming out of Sydney where they Mm. can't afford a million dollar home Mm. and they come in here and they look at a normal three bedroom home which is half a million and they think, oh, it's not much cheaper than Sydney but hold on, I can buy these small blocks and put a small house on there Mm. where I can afford that and get into the housing market and then start to build up some equity in that process. So this is really about the future and this is one developer, one development. Mm. But again, I think we'll start to see a bit more of this sort of thing. So basically this proposal will now be submitted to the Department of Planning and Environment. This is the State Department for what's called a gateway determination for that rezoning for that particular parcel of land. If that goes through, and I can't see any reason why it wouldn't go through, but if that goes through, then as that developer develops those lot sizes, they'll be able to have those smaller lot sizes. And Mm. I think personally, but again, I'm not the developer, you'd probably do a mix. You'd do Mm. some 300, you'd do some 400, 500, 600. You might even do some larger ones in there somewhere. Mm. You might do some... 
what's, they seem to be called dual occupancy now rather than duplex, but what mm. people would call duplex blocks. You might do a few of the corners as duplex blocks. And the modern duplex is not like, I remember duplexes when I was growing up and you'd drive it to someone's house and there'd be the almost the two garages side by side yes, yes. and the little bit of a brick wall between the two yes. and that was one and that mm. was the other. Yes. And so there were very much it was obvious that they were linked. Whereas mm. now you see the dual occupancy often on a corner and you'll come into one place from one street and the other place from the other street. Mm. So they mm. don't even look obvious that they're joined together. Yep. So you've got those sort of potentials there, but it's a changing market. And yes. this is the real message I suppose I've got here for our residents. We are changing what's available out there. Not just us, developers yep. are doing it as well. Because what people need and what people want, that's all changing. It's not a case anymore of just sticking mm. those 1,600 square metre blocks out there and that's all you can build and, and that's what you'll have because our sprawl is just going too wide and too far for the population growth that we've got. Quick question for you then in regards to that. Um, if a developer comes in and says, look, I've got this uh, large area of land which I want to develop um, and council says, okay, well, we'll allow you to develop blocks in here of 300 square metres. Does council then have a say in regards to how many smaller blocks and, and the sizing of the blocks, or is that up to the developer then to turn around and to determine that? Within the zoning, it's largely the developer. Okay. So if the zoning is correct for a type of parcel of land, then or, or, or parcel, sorry, has got the correct zoning, then the developer can do what's allowed within that particular zoning. Now, we might suggest that it's not ideal to have every block at 300 square metres and create a, a run of these very tiny houses. Mm. But at the same time, within reason, the developer can say, well, it's my land, I'll develop it as I see fit. Mm. There's some conversations there. There's a whole range of things that you've got to consider. And there's that magic word, amenity. And mm. I love that word. Planners use that when it's convenient for them. Perhaps I might say that and be a little bit cheeky with, with planners. But it is something that's important because the amenity of an area is why people want to live in that area. Mm. Why do mm. people want to live in Dubbo rather than Sydney? Largely for the amenity. I don't want to live in Sydney because I don't want the congestion and the yep. smog and the high-rise apartment building and all the various things associated with Sydney. I'd rather live out here, nicer people, nicer living environment. I would call that the amenity. But what is the amenity? Mm. It's a bit like the castle. It's a, mm. it's the feeling. It's the vibe. It's, <laughs> it's how it makes you feel living there. So you've got to be careful of that. Yes. But we can't just say to a developer, you can't do all that size block because the amenity is wrong. Mm. You'd want to have a bit more substance associated with that. Mm. I mean, some people have said, maybe planners at council want to start telling you what colour to paint your house. Mm. No, that's not the case. You can mm. paint your house whatever colour you like. But if you go and paint an ugly colour, maybe your your neighbours mightn't love that. But what's ugly? What's an ugly colour? What you find beautiful, the neighbour mm. might find ugly. So mm. again, we don't start stepping in with paint colours on a house. And again, same with the planning of a house. You can build a house that looks a bit different. What's ugly, what's terrible, mm. that's up mm. to each individual. Well, it's a bit like what you're sort of saying. It probably boils down to personal preference. If you want to live in a house that's 1,600 square metre blocks, say up in the South Dubbo area, some of those bigger areas up through there, well, that's where you're going to live. You, you wait for a place to become available and you buy a place there, I'd suggest. If you're coming across here and you're happier to sort of to live in a 300 square metre block, well, there's opportunities there for you. So I suppose what you're saying here is that council wants to get with the times in regards to the fact this is where we're moving towards. You want to create a variety of options here uh, and the flexibility of purchase. 
Uh, is that sort of part of where council's moving with this and understanding of the nature of the modern human being and what our marketplace looks like? Yeah, the magic word you said there was variety, and mm. that's the crucial thing. So you'll get some people who come from the farm and they move into Dubbo, which I, I know happened, yep. and they couldn't contemplate being on a tiny block. They mm. want a bit of garden around them, they want to tinker away with their garden because they've been used to doing that on their farm, and that's fantastic. You've got mm. other people who have moved out of an apartment block in Sydney, yes. and they think 300 square metre block is luxury. Yeah, so yeah, they look around right. that and they've got a little bit of grass and a little yeah. bit of area around their house and they think, wow, this yeah. is fantastic. I can't yeah, believe yeah. I've got so much room. And their friends yeah. come and visit them and go, look yeah. at what you've got here. This is fantastic. So it is about that mm. variety and it comes down to affordability as mm. well. Mm. You might say lots of people might want to be on that big 1,600 square metre block, but it costs more than a 300 square metre block. Mm. So it comes down mm. the affordability and the house you would put on there as well. Mm. If you put a little tiny one-bedroom house on a 1,600 square metre block, it probably would look a bit out of ordinary, yes. out yes, of the norm. Yes. You put that smaller house on a smaller block, it tends to make a bit more sense. Mm. So there's all of that. But it is about variety. It's about having yeah. variety of choice for people and trying to get the variety of options so they can go the affordable option, they can go the size option they want, or they can go to those large ones. And sometimes it comes down to, I've, I've talked to people who have had kids, raised a family, mm. and then they are doing the lawn mowing on the weekends and the kids aren't running around anymore. Why am I mm. wasting my time and all this? Yeah. They want to go to a smaller Classic block. Classic downsizer. Classic that's downsizer, it. that's yeah. right. So go yeah. to a smaller block, less maintenance for them, and they feel like they can just spend more time enjoying themselves rather than mucking yeah. around with their house. Okay. Right, uh, let's move into this little one here in regards to uh, what's referred to here as the water and sewer fee harmonisation. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, Matt. So this, I think, is in regards to uh, Wellington and Dubbo, uh, in regards to, I suppose, creating a system here whereby people who live in both places are paying a similar type of mount for your water and for your sewerage. Um, so that we're not getting this disparity. Because it, it, right now, is there a disparity between the, the pricing of water and sewage in some places as opposed to other places? Um, and what's the plan here with council? Are we looking at here at trying to get, a, as the word says, harmonisation of the pricing? When amalgamations occur, and this is across the state, so anytime there's an amalgamation, yep. it's a condition, or not so much a condition, but those amalgamated councils have to get to the stage where they charge the same rates in the same zones. Obviously, you have different zones with different different rates you might pay, like a, a commercial rate down the CBD of a, a city would be different to a residential rate, for example. Sure. But in the same zones, you've got to get to the point where you charge the same rates. Mm. Now, our amalgamation between Dubbo and Wellington occurred on the 12th of May 2016, and the government of the day, the state government said, you've got to the 1st of July... 2021, so five years effectively, yep. to get to the point where you're charging the same rates for both. It's not always a popular or easy thing to do because anytime mm. you say you're paying rate X, you're paying rate Y, we're going to give everyone rate Z, mm. then there's going to be some winners and losers. I was about to say exact same thing. Some and, will win, some will lose. That's right. And what you'll find Across the state, I would struggle to remember any of the amalgamated councils that occurred with that amalgamation back in 2016 mm. that didn't leave it until the 1st of July 2021. I can see this is going to create some, uh, uh, let's just say, discussion. <laughs> That's right. In, in and you, to it. They, so they, most councils left as long as possible yep. because it's not necessarily 
an entirely popular decision when you do mm. it because of that winner and loser scenario. Mm. And you might say, well, you'll be popular with the people that have got a bit of a win. So it's sort of like a drop lines. on the rates and that sort of stuff with the figures there. Yeah. That's right. Now, they don't require a harmonisation between two different or any number of amalgamated councils for water and sewer. So you can keep charging different amounts for your water charges and your sewage charges, but it doesn't make sense. Mm. If we want to be one amalgamated council where as many things as possible are kept together and not have people over there, I'll, I'll move over that little area there, that mm. used to be the old Wellington local government area, mm. and they pay a different rate for their water. Why is that? We're all one council area. Mm. But the last council chose, for whatever reason, not to harmonise water and sewerage. Okay. This council said, well, it doesn't make sense. Wellington's paying different amounts for their water to Dubbo. Mm. Wellington's actually got a tiered rate. So as you use more water in Wellington, as you go up through the different tiers, you pay different amounts for that water. Does Dubbo that used, Dubbo? Or? No, Dubbo used to have that way back in the early 2000s. I thought it did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. but, and I actually didn't mind that system, yep. but the directive that came from the state government was, no, we want to see just a flat rate for water, whether you're buying one kilolitre or 10,000 kilolitres, every kilolitre costs the that. same okay. amount. I, I actually still thought we were on the tiered base system. Yeah, you don't okay. obviously look at your rates very often. No, so. obviously don't. <laughs> it's that fine line part. <laughs> but, <laughs> so we changed that and went to just a, a flat rate. Okay. But Wellington is still on the tiered rate. Again, why shouldn't they all be the same? And if everyone wants tiered rates across mm. the LGA, then have them all as tiered rates. Mm. So what we're doing at the moment is very early we're going out. So here we are at the beginning of February and we've put out through the council papers some proposals around that harmonisation so people can look at the winner slash loser scenario mm. trying to get to that stage where we've got some consistency and it will apply differently for everyone, especially that water usage scenario there. Depending on where you are on that tiered rate of usage, the winner-loser scenario might be different for you compared to your next-door neighbour, for example. Sure. By okay. the 1st of July this year... Our plan, what we'd like to do as council, is get to the stage where people in Dubbo, the old Dubbo City Council and the old Wellington Shire Council, local government areas, are all just paying the same rates. If you're in Dubbo Regional Council, you pay the same amount for your water. The connection fees, the sewerage rates are all just paid at the same amount. Again, and there's differences there, business rates, the size of your connection. There are still differences okay, there. So but there's a few differences there, potentially right. still, a few but variables. For, for any example where you've got the same connection using the same amount of water, you should be paying the same. Now, we've started this very early. Mm. Ultimately, this will come to our budget discussions where we make the final decision on the budget towards the end of June. But we wanted to start it early, and we've put some proposed rates in our business papers now because we want people to look at it now, giving them time to think about it, mull it over, how does that apply to me? Let's look at my rates, let's look at whether I'm on tiered rates or not in your mm, scenario. Yes, yes. And just actually get a bit of a feel for it and then put some feedback in. Now, let me stress, this is not about council trying to do a cash grab from people and try and generate more income. In fact, in our water rates, if we went ahead with it exactly as it is now and people use the same amount of water, because again, you pay for water per kilolitre, so yep. it could be a variable, but if you went ahead with it right now and use the same amount of water we would generate $115,000 less next year compared to this year based on that harmonisation process. Okay. Now, again, we're doing that quite deliberately to say we're trying to get to the stage where it's as gentle to everyone mm. as possible. Now, if that means you're not generating quite the same amount of water, that's okay. And when we talk about water, one of the things that's very important for people to understand is that if we generate extra money from our water, it has to stay in the water fund. 
you can't, let's say we have a dry year and people use twice as much water as normal yeah. and we actually generate more water in our water fund, we can't take that water money and use it for fixing our roads. It has to stay in water-related so infrastructure. So you're talking about here like the, the water filtration plants and things like that? Is that Pipes in the ground, okay. water filtration plants. So it's something very specific from the state government where they say your water fund has got to be used on water assets only. Right. Your sewerage fund has got to be used on sewerage assets only. They want each of those to run very much as its own business and keep the money in its own business. And you're trying to ultimately get to the stage where you break even in those. Mm. Obviously, you want to generate some surplus because you want to be able to pay when things happen where you need to replace pipes in the ground or mm. put in, in a new fluoride dosing system, for example. Mm. You want to be able to have the money within those assets to be able to do that. Mm. But you can't take it out of that asset and go and spend it in another part of council's operations. So if people want to see the, the plan and the proposed plan, they jump online? Is there a, a spot they can look at to sort of see what the plan is or is the plan still being established? Well, the plan isn't established yet, but we've got some draft proposed figures okay. and they're in our business papers okay. that went through to council last Thursday. So if you want to have a look at those, have a look at those. Again, that's not the final numbers, they're not the final numbers, but it's a proposal. Mm. And we'll keep looking at that and we'll get some feedback from the community and keep massaging those. Mm. Again, when it gets to the final draft budget meeting in June where we actually basically go ahead with the budget from the 1st of July, that's when it'll be finalised. So we've mm. got many months to go before that period of time, and I'd encourage people to look at it and then yeah, yeah. pull out their bill and have a look at it. Well, the feedback side of things, which is probably just generally across the board, how do people give feedback to council? Is is there a spot on their website where they can do this? So it's a complicated one because normally we'd say, as part of that information that goes out, here's where you put your feedback in. It's not designed for feedback yet, but of course we'll take feedback. Mm. So you can just send an email through to council. You can send an email through to council laws. That information's all on the website. Okay. So you can do that in a normal way. As we go further with the actual plan, we'll formally invite some feedback a little bit further down the track. Mm. But you can give feedback now. There's okay. no problem with that. But again, really at the moment, we're saying to people, have a look at it. That's yeah, the yeah. crucial thing. Absolutely. Have a look. Get a feel for it see how that might impact you individually and see what other ideas you might have. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is get to the stage where if you're in this local government area, you will pay the same amount for your water as everyone else in this local government area yeah. in those same zones. As they say, have a look at the plan, guys. Check it out. Actually, let's, uh, let's move on. Speaking of water, and you talk there about fluoride, let's jump into that for a second in regards to uh, wade our way through the fluoride debate. I'm full of the puns today, aren't I? There it is. So think about, now, during the week, was, was there a motion put to council or a proposition put to council in regards to the whole idea of where we're up to with the fluoride? Because, um, again, I wasn't actually aware of the fact that we don't have fluoride in our water. So, so it, not had fluoride in the water for a while now? Or what's, what's the situation there? Yeah, you're not Robinson Crusoe, unfortunately. The community didn't know. Okay. Uh, back in January 2019, there was a failure in the component that, puts fluoride into the water, and our staff did the right thing. They reported that through to the upper levels of council, but council decided to do nothing with that information, unfortunately. We didn't find out about it until almost the middle of last year, and Mm. when I found out about it, it's a bit of a fluke, but once I found out about it, went through a process, we engaged Public Works, we told the community to basically say, well, we've got to fix this problem because it's a breach of the Act. Yeah, is, Is there a reason why we don't have... I know the council didn't previous councils, I don't like to talk too much about what happened in the past, um, but I would have thought it would be an essential thing in the modern world to have fluoride in our water. You know, is this seemed to be, to me, to be something that I thought was just a natural given. Well, it is. It, it, we'll go back one step. According to the uh, Act that 
relates to the treatment of drinking water, a community can make a decision to put fluoride in their water or not. And there are obviously some people out there who have their strong beliefs about fluoride not being in water, and that's fine. But if a community has said there's no fluoride in the water, and then someone, an organisation that's treating water, so a council in this scenario, mm. starts putting fluoride in the water, that's a breach of the Act. Yeah, okay. And the same is true in reverse. Mm. If a community says, yes, put fluoride in our water, please, and there's an expectation that's in there, mm. and then the organisation treating that water, council, mm. doesn't put fluoride in the water, that's a breach of the Act. So yeah, right. from okay. January 2019 to, well, still now, yeah. we're breaching the Act. Now, one again, once we found out the fact that there wasn't fluoride in the water, which the public hadn't been told. And I think that's the real crime here in this scenario. Yeah. The public had not been told about this. So for almost three and a half years, there wasn't water being put in the fluoride and the public hadn't been informed of that. Mm. So again, once we found out about it, we told the public and we said, we'll address this. And we made a commitment to the community that by the end of June this year, we'll have that problem rectified. Okay. And there were two ways we could go about rectifying that. And again, this was advice from New South Wales Public Works. Mm. There was a leak in the tank so fluoride was stored as a liquid, right? And fluoride as a liquid is not the nicest substance to store. Okay. And so sometimes you'll get a leak in a tank because it's quite corrosive. Right. The normal thing you'd expect to do then is to patch the leak in the tank, and that's it. Problem solved. Mm. And that's what council probably should have done back in January 2019. When it had been so long without fluoride, we said to Public Works, "Is patching the tank the best thing to do?" Or now. We put that that whole water treatment plant in back in 2006. Now, all these years later, is there a better way than the method that was being used? So they did some investigations for us and they came back and said, yes, we believe there are some better methods now. You should basically redo that whole fluoride dosing system and actually store the fluoride as a dry powder or as a pellet potentially rather than as a liquid and then there are different dosing systems. So we contemplated all that and said that's a better way to go. Let's go for that. And again, we've been working with Public Works this whole time. One of the questions that was put to council at the council meeting last Thursday, there's a process called questions on notice. Okay. Councillor Shibley Shadery put some questions on notice on to council. And the good part about that is it gives our staff time to gather the information, present that to a public meeting, i.e. a council meeting, mm. and the public is fully informed then. So essentially from that question that was put to council, there's a... Uh, tender that's actually out now as we speak that tender closes on valentine's day on the 14th of february 2023 the tenders for a design and construct again looking to use a modern method of that and our plan still working with new south wales public works is still to have that tender awarded to some organization again we haven't seen the tenders yet there'll be a tender awarded to an organization and the timeline that we will certainly say to them is by 30 june 2023 we want fluoride back in the water. Oh, well, It'll be that's disappointing. Great. That is actually great to hear. It really is. It is. It's still disappointing that essentially by the time we get fluoride yeah. back in the water, there will have been a four and a half year gap. So if you're a four yeah. and a half year old child. That's right. You haven't had any fluoride in your water. That's right. How are your teeth from that? Yeah. Dentists have talked about missing mm. fluoride for a short period of time. Yeah. No big deal for a longer period of time. Yes, that can have long term impacts on your mm. teeth. I don't know the implications of all of that. Mm. But it's certainly disappointing when you find out an organisation you should have trust in has let you down in that process. But well, I'm so again, pleased to hear that something's finally happening about this. And so June this year, folks. Oh, yes. Now, the uh, this is a good little one too. I like this because 
This is something uh, that I'm sure a lot of people uh, in and around Dubbo, we, we, drive, by, we drive by this uh, pretty regularly here on the, the Mitchell Highway leading into town. And these are the, the acoustic fences up along the Keswick Estate there. They're those colourful fences that uh, when you're heading up towards Sheridan Road, heading out of town from uh, Arana Mall, you see them there on the right-hand side. Now, I know they've been put up there and uh, look, aesthetically, I'm sure they're, they're quite nice and lovely, but I feel as though the fact that Council's planning here to do something more with this area, because it is quite barren, to be frank. Um, and yeah, I, I get the colours and I get all of that, but especially when it dries off and the green dries away and just becomes a bit of a dust bowl, it, it's it's not the best look coming into town seeing that, is it? So what's, what's Council's plan here? And you're right, driving into our city, we want it to look as good as possible. Yes. And so the plan has always been to do something extra there with some landscaping. Those acoustic tiles there, that acoustic fence is really designed to keep some of the highway noise mm. away from the Keswick community in there and that seems to work well and do its job. Yep. Having some sort of landscaping and not just trees, but the wee trees will be part of that, but mm. just basically beautifying that area. And also having some trees there will help with that sound abatement as well mm. because obviously mm. uh hard fence can bounce sound off it and so that might create more sound in other areas but trees tend to absorb it because they're uneven shapes they tend to absorb it a little bit better and actually dissipate that noise in a better way but uh, again i suppose the main message here for the community is they drive in there they see that fence and they go oh it looks a bit ugly Mm. down in front of it there there's a few trees there but it looks like it was kind of half done and then yeah, stopped. Yeah, so a bit, bit of an ad hoc almost sort of thing. We'll throw a few trees in here just to sort of to appease the environmental feel of it. Yeah, and the, there will actually be some trees removed as part of this process okay. and some additional trees put in. But essentially, we'll see some activity there towards the end of February okay, where we'll so start to see... Okay, so it's pretty recent. It's not too far away. That's right. It's all, it's all about to happen. And again, that whole idea there is it will look better as we come in. Yeah. There'll be some landscaping. There'll be some different trees in there. But keep an eye out for that. Again, I think that'll be quite nice there and look a bit better than that fence but also help with that sound through into Keswick Estate so it'll serve its initial purpose but just look a bit better as you come in. Oh that's lovely to hear. Now Matt, uh, the countdown is very much on right now for the New South Wales Touch Football Junior State Cup that's about to arrive. Uh, we talked about this last week and how they've uh, councils already started to move down there some of the, the chairs there, the grandstand setting already. Um how are we going with it? Like uh, anything else to sort of happen in regards to the lead up to this? Because, of course, this is a major event for Dubbo. You were saying there before that there's about 10,000 people expected to come here. We'll definitely notice 10,000 people in town. It, we will definitely notice that big time. So what are we doing here in our planning to prepare for this big event? Yeah, so it, it, something did go through council last Thursday, but I'll just give you a quick revision there as well. So 10,000 was the number that was discussed with New South Wales Touch around the number we might expect in the community based on a certain number of teams and a whole range of variables. The latest data says it's more like 7,000. Okay. This is still based, a big number, though. Still a big number. This is based on the number of teams that have actually registered. Right. And, again, the supporters and the mm. officials, etc. So that's the 10,000 is a, is a number that's, I suppose, a potential maximum there. Mm. But mm. once you start getting into the nitty-gritty, you, you find out the, the actual data and the real numbers mm. there. So 7,000 still fantastic and still a fantastic injection yeah. into this, our economy. This is going to run over a couple of days too, is it? Or what yeah, are we talking about, about here? Yeah, about four days four in the days. end. So once once yeah. you've got that running, there. The main message from the council meeting, and we might talk more about it in, say, next week, but the main message from that council meeting was that we had some traffic 
plan changes there because we'll have some roads that are cut off. Okay. And we've got some maps on our website and, again, through the council meeting, you can actually look at those exact roads. These are I'm assuming, down at the bottom there, near the, the river? Is that the, the main cut-off uh, Around Lady Cutler, yeah, exactly yeah, right. Okay. So they basically, on the, the days of, uh, say, the 24th, 25th, 26th of February, from 5am to 7pm, which is mm. obviously when lots of things will be happening. We'll have lots of roads closed right. around there. Yep. And so it's really just a message to the community to be aware of that. Yep. Don't suddenly go to drive down there and go, what's going on here? Yeah, no yeah, one told well, me about they, this. There's no more floods. Why they block this road off? <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully there's no more flooding. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. I don't want to jinx that one. Yes. Uh, but again, this sort of process is actually quite interesting. When you do have road closures, there is a fairly big process there. Mm. So this first went to the local traffic committee that was, or the meeting that was held on Monday, 5th of December. So it's been from wow, that it's been planning. the planning for that long. That's right. And the local traffic committee has police on it, for example. Mm. We've got council on there. So we've got some different representatives on there. Yes. They consider that from a traffic movement, or in this case, a lack of traffic movement yes, perspective, that's right. and make sure that they're happy with it. They might want to fine-tune that plan, change it, modify it, whatever. And then they send that through to council for council to basically ratify it. Mm. It becomes complicated if council wants to change it because... Especially if when we, you're going back for all this planning and suddenly someone says, oh, we're going to change something in this. So if councillors had have said on Thursday night, no, no, we don't like this particular plan, we want to change mm. that or have the time change there, we could do that. But then it needs to go back to a local traffic committee mm. to get them to approve it because we need to be in agreement because we want to make sure that the police, for example, mm. are happy with the plan we're putting forward. So it does become mm. complicated. It normally doesn't happen. Normally the local no. traffic committee, we're relying on their advice, then yep. normally comes to council and we look at that and say, yes, we're happy with that, and it goes forward. But again, we're only mm. talking about a few weeks away, so mm. if councillors had said, no, no, we don't want that, then there would have been an emergency local traffic committee. And I think held. you can safely say your Christmas present from the uh, from that committee has now been banned <laughs> and dodged. It may have happened <laughs> that way, but I suppose the main message here is it will be congested around the area. Mm. We'd love people to go down there and have a look at it because we want people to see some of the competition will be fantastic. Oh. Fantastic, some of the, the standard will be fantastic there. So go ahead and have a look at yeah. it, but just be aware of some of those road closures and even just yeah. the normal driving that you might do to get from A to B. Mm. Keep away from that area as much as possible. But mm. again, it will be good for the community. Absolutely. Now, Matt, I noticed that uh, during the week you went on down, travelling down to the nation's capital, good old Canberra. Canberra. I <laughs> love it down there. So uh, you had a, a meeting here with some of the Canberra politicians. Mm. Um, Who did you catch up with and uh, what was the discussion about this time? So there's an organisation that Dubbo is a member of. We were a member of it years ago. We dropped out of that particular right. group and now we're back in as a member. Yep. It's called Regional Capitals Australia. Okay. And the focus for that particular organisation is really about saying to the Canberra pollies that you've got a Melbourne or a Sydney and you give a significant sum of money to those particular cities. But when you combine the regional capital, so mm. all of these capitals around Australia, the combined total of population there and the services they need and what they do for the nation is probably just as valuable, we would maybe argue more valuable mm. yeah, than I'd, a Sydney I'd argue or that, Melbourne. I think, coming from here. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. Right. And, and maybe I'm a little bit biased as many of Nothing those... Nothing wrong with that. That's your <laughs> that's job, buddy. You've got to be a bit biased. Many of those councils on Regional Capital Australia are very biased in mm. that. So this is something that we used to do regularly back again when I was mayor before. We used to go down and we mm. used to meet there. I used to sit on the executive of Regional Capital Australia all those years ago. Again... That didn't happen when we pulled out of membership and then COVID, so they used to do some remote meetings. And now we're back in again. Dubbo's a member. I'm actually the secretary in this organisation, so okay. back on the executive again. But we do take advantage of the fact that when 
parliament is sitting, you've got all the polys from around the nation there in one spot. Mm. We've got a new government in at the moment, mm. so it's a great opportunity to get down there and meet with some of these new members of parliament. So they just started meeting again this week, didn't they? That's, correct, yeah, yeah. So it was a good opportunity. Yep. And, and unfortunately, we probably didn't meet with as many pollies as we normally would because it's all a bit new for mm. these new pollies. Yep. And again, first meeting back. During the year, we normally get down to Canberra three, four times and have some meetings with these various politicians there. Okay. And part of it is just so they know that we exist. Yeah, they know yeah. that some of these regional communities exist. And it's not about going down there, putting your hand out, the hand over mm. a cheque, and then away you go. Mm. Sometimes it's going to be about changing policy. So two of the policies we caught up with, one was Christian McBain, who's the Minister for Regional Development, Local Government and Territories. Mm, now, important spoken, person to be discussing with, I'd suggest. Absolutely right. We've spoken, well, I've spoken to Christy a few times about different things, but mm. one of the things that certainly we took advantage of there is we've got a few councils in renewable energy zones. We've mm. talked about that here yes. before. We want to see what we can get out of Parliament, out of the government, both federal and state, mm. to help us with our road infrastructure, given the fact that they want various communities to help solve our power problems. Mm. We think it's only fair and reasonable that the governments help out those communities, for example, with their road infrastructure. Yeah, now, there's a absolutely. whole range of technicalities that the proponents have to adhere to in that, but we want to see what extra we can get out of them. And so, again, it wasn't just about, in these scenarios, it's not always about just what Dubbo wants. Mm. It's about the broader, what can you do for regional capitals? And many mm. are in areas where renewable energy will be a big thing. So mm. Christie certainly had open ears about that and was okay. interested in that. And again, I didn't expect to write out a check on the spot, but as we keep lobbying and as we keep talking to various government departments, Christie will be aware of it and understand a bit more of our ask mm. for that. So that mm. was good. Another one we met with was Andrew Giles. Okay. Now, he's the Minister for Immigration, Citizenship and Multicultural Affairs. Right, okay. You'll be remembering the discussion that we've had yes. around Australia Day. Yes. And again, it was one of the things that Andrew Giles, as the Minister, made that decision too late in our scenario. Right. But from next year, we'll be able to take advantage if we want, where you can have your Australia Day ceremony mm. up to three days before or after the 26th mm. of January. Mm. So one of the discussions I had with this particular minister was around that decision about how well it was received in Wellington having a twilight event. And obviously he was quite happy to hear the fact that there was some progress there. But one of the things that I did want to talk to him about was the fact that we're getting this really multicultural community now. 18.5% mm. of the people that live in Dubbo's LGA were born overseas, which is quite fascinating. Yes. One of the areas that I think we've really got to get better at is making sure we've got the correct services for people that come from overseas. And again, he was very interested to hear is, about is that. Is that a common problem across the board in regional New South Wales or across regional Australia, to be honest? Where you've got more people moving from overseas, yes. And I remember last time I was mayor, I had people at citizenship ceremonies that would come from England, mm. New Zealand, the US, places where culture was similar, uh, say culture in the US, maybe with my tongue in my cheek slightly, but <laughs> but that sort of background yeah. was similar to what we've got here in Australia. So it was pretty easy for people from those areas to assimilate into our community. Yes. Now when I do citizenship ceremonies, I see Nepal mm. and Bangladesh and mm. India and a whole range of areas that have a different cultural background, which I think is fantastic yes, yes. in the melting pot we get, but sometimes some of those people don't always understand how they can uh, take advantage of services or access services. So doing something for them is important, mm. but council just doesn't have the resources mm. to create that. So that was the discussion, oh, the main discussion. Yeah, and again, yeah. it wasn't about just Dubbo, no, no. but that was about those regional capitals. It's an important discussion in the bigger scheme of things. And we get more people 
that move to Dubbo from some of those different areas and say yeah. a smaller community like an Aramine or even a Wellington might get. So mm. it is important to have some of those extra services. Yeah. So that was good. We also caught up with some advisors, not the ministers themselves, right. but the senior advisors for people like the Honourable Michelle Rowland, who's a Minister for Communications, Catherine King, Minister for uh, infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government and Julie Collins, Minister for Homes, Homelessness and Small Business. And obviously that was an important one mm. because homes and getting more homes is really important. Mm. So a very good day, I thought, caught up with a lot of advisors. And again, they'll take the information back to their particular ministers and make sure they communicate our points. Mm. We also had a little booklet that we put together yep. that had some of the things that we'd like to see in the budget because it's not about an election with the federal mm. government now. It's about budget discussions and budget mm. meetings. It's great to see how it networks across and how the, the role of the local government connects up to federal government and you can bypass the state government along the way. It's all these... <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're still working in this different things. Different sort of areas, aren't they? You know, yeah, and important links. You always want to be working with the state government whenever you can, when it's applicable, but there are certain mm. things where the federal government's applicable as well. Absolutely. The other thing is the federal government usually has a bigger checkbook. So you want to try and <laughs> yes. get in good with the federal government Staying if you can. Good, good with the, the aunties and the grandpas down there in Canberra. That's right. All right, Matt. We're finishing up, of course, this week with the Limerick. So uh, I talk about it every week. I do enjoy our Limerick every week. It's such a nice way to finish off our our podcast. So uh, what have you got for us this week? Well, when I wrote this Limerick, it was fairly fresh after we'd had our storm. So oh, okay. the, yes. the storm was a bit of the focus for the, for the Limerick for this week. So I will do another one on you, I promise. I know you'd like to see the Limerick every week on you, but unfortunately... <laughs> no, look, I've changed the mind now. Just give me one of those garden seats down the track. Yeah, right. Okay, good. <laughs> so a Limerick this week goes like this. A storm in Dubbo caused widespread grief, leaving behind a trail of disbelief. Houses were shaking, windows were breaking, but no one was hurt, much to our relief. Oh, well done, mate. Well done. And I think you've nailed it very, very well. Of course, the fact the storms did come through, but fortunately, no one got injured. Hopefully, everybody's out there now uh, tidying those sort of their little properties up and getting things sorted out. Well, folks, that just about finishes up now for our Merrill Memo podcast. Until next week, take care. Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.